0: Before we begin our time, Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we have this second Sunday of Advent to continue to prepare our hearts for a proper worshiping of your coming among us, and at the same time expectant that you're coming again for us. And this season is one where we can do some self-evaluation and make sure that uh, Lord we we get it right and we thank you for this isaiah text lord which helps us to do just that and we pray now that as we look at this passage that's well familiar to so many that you would speak new truths into our hearts that you would take my words and speak through them and you would set all of our hearts on fire with love for you and for your son jesus christ for it's in his name we pray amen I want to encourage all the families that are watching at home, Uh, Kim dropped off the activity sheets, to use those whenever Zach or Kim give the children's address because this way it stays in their thoughts and their hearts throughout the week. And these are resources which are well worth us going into as God's people. It was the end of World War II on May eighth, nineteen forty-five, when the night of the Allied victory of Europe, Anne Sweet, soon to become Anne Ortland, the father of who I always, you know, name Ray Ortland, his mother was the daughter of a brigadier general. And lived in Arlington, Virginia. So the family had suffered through the war together. And they wanted to celebrate with all of Washington, D.C. downtown. So she went downtown to celebrate. Where to her dismay, the crowd just was vulgar, rowdy, and awful. She said when she came home, she felt like she wanted to take a bath. It was awful. And she thought to herself, you know, I thought we triumphed over evil. Is this what this is all about? Now, not all World War II post-celebrations were this way, but it was for her. And she was so disappointed. When we see how far that we have fallen and how broken the world is, it explains why disappointment pervades our experience. As we see more and more of life, we are confronted with disappointment constantly and thoroughly, and hope begins to look like it's just plain stupid. We become disappointed in our ideals, we become disappointed in our spouse, we become disappointed in our careers, we get disappointed with our romance, we get disappointed with people we trust, we get disappointed in ourselves. And when all human hopes have let us down, we might be ready for the only true hope that really exists in Jesus Christ. We're in this Advent series entitled Living at the Intersection of Heaven and Earth. Because that's what the texts in Advent take us to. That this is real stuff in our present lives. As well as going into the future. Last week in Isaiah 65, we saw that, that there was a plea in Isaiah that God would be in our midst. And we saw that it's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God is with us. And so therefore, we can launch into Advent with this perspective of wake up, watch, and wait expectantly. That God is doing a work in each and every one of us. And we can look forward to seeing how it's going to be played out. And that God's going to return, as Kimmy just talked about. And so today we turn back to another theme in Isaiah, chapter 40. Uh, And it's important to know that this is the beginning of a new section of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah. Isaiah gives a message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. Uh... God accuses Judah's leaders of rebellion against God and has said that through Assyria and Babylon, Judah's kingdom will come crashing down in an act of God's judgment upon them. And so chapter 39 concludes with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon and exile. And a hundred years later, sadly, that came true. But Isaiah's greater hope for, is it for a new and purified Jerusalem where God's kingdom would be restored through a future messianic king. And all nations would come together under his reign in a reign and a kingdom of peace. And so you arrive at chapter 40 and Isaiah changes the subject to a message of great hope. It begins a major new section of the book. He's no longer addressing Judah in his present day. He's being projected into the future like the Apostle John was projected into the future in the book of Revelation. He's looking forward and seeing a future day and declaring the gospel to the Jews who are in exile in Babylon. Babylon. So he's saying to them and therefore to us as well, God hasn't abandoned you. Your best days are ahead of you. God has a purpose of grace far better than you can ever imagine. He's coming to save you. Believe it and let this hope fuel your life. And so what we see in verses 1 through 11 of Isaiah 40 are four different things. Four promises with four elements. First is the occasion of his comforting promise. Second is the content of his comforting promise. Third is the certainty of his comforting promise. And fourth, the spreading of his comforting promise. Let's look at these. First, the occasion of his comforting promise. And as we do that, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Because we have a tendency to sulk over the bitterness of life. It's easy to do so in a pandemic. And we think that God is against us. But even in times like this, God wants to breathe new life into us. So Isaiah is asking us, will you give yourself permission to stop resenting God and start delighting in him according to the promises that he's making here? So first, let's look at the occasion of his comforting promise. Verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, for her servitude is ended, for her iniquity is pardoned, or she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. There is an end to the disciplines of God. Faith in Christ and Christianity is not all struggle. It's also a release and a hope of new beginning. God's deepest intention toward you is comfort. How could it be otherwise given who he is? If the focus of Christianity is merely our sins, we wouldn't have hope for our future at all. But in fact, Christianity is all about the saving grace of God. He overrules our stupidity with his absolute pardon. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Do we sin? Yes. Do we suffer for it? Yes. Is that where God leaves us? No. When his discipline has done its good work. God comes back to us with overwhelming and overflowing comfort. You see. God is not frowning at you. He's smiling at you. In Jesus. He's not distant from you. He's near by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even when we don't act like the people he calls us to be, he still identifies with us. Notice he says, my people. I am your God. He still calls us Jerusalem, even When we're far away in exile. Do you have great expectations of God? You may, even as a sinner. Do you see God as coming down to you as you are? With your mission still unfulfilled. But with his renewing mercies upon you. See, you may, and you must see God that way, or else you'll never gain any traction in the Christian life. The Bible says that it's God's kindness which brings us to repentance. John Calvin said, No one who ever reveres God, but he who is confident that God is favorable toward him. The occasion of God's renewing comfort is our failure. (laughs) To be the people we've been called to be. It's as if Isaiah has fallen asleep like Rick Van Winkle. And he wakes up 200 years later in Babylon and starts to give this vision of comfort. He reveals to the people in exile what he's heard in this heavenly throne room. And it's a message of hope to a demoralized people in the midst of their failure To follow God. I think that's a good word for us. In the middle of a pandemic. That's the occasion. Well what about the content? What's he bringing to the people? Verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, Isaiah hears a voice and God has commanded his servant, still unidentified to bring a message of salvation, a message of comfort. Verse 1 is plural in the Hebrew. It's comforts. Isaiah hears one of those prophetic voices. He hears this comforting message. And he's saying, what is God saying here? Well, there's three things. There's three contents here that God wants to bring. The first of the contents is the king is coming. He's coming to us as we are, wherever we are in the wilderness and desert of our real lives. And he wants us to get ready to receive him because we are not ready to receive him. We know that from Luke chapter 3, this messenger was embodied by the person and the ministry of John the Baptist. That Jesus was and is the coming king. And that the readiness that we need is newness of life. We, we, we can't hide behind our Anglican labels. Uh, just like the Jews in Luke chapter 3 hid behind the label. Well, we have Abraham as our father. We can't hide behind, well, I was baptized. Well, I was confirmed. I'm in the youth group. I'm a member of the altar guild. I'm a lay reader. I'm an usher. I'm a greeter. I in the meal, serve in the meals ministry. No, what we need is a new self. Prepare the way of the Lord in your life. The second piece of content is that God will accomplish this purpose. His purpose. Every valley shall be lifted up and so forth. It's a reconstruction project. A renovation project. And what he's talking about is not literal geographical change, but about the upheaval of genuine, true repentance in a Christian's life. He's talking about a new spiritual geography leading to a changed life. He's talking about the disruption and the advance of salvation in a person's life. He's saying that lifting and lowering and leveling and smoothing are necessary... For each and every one of us in Christ. It's part of being in the kingdom. He's talking about depression being relieved. He's talking about pride being flattened. He's talking about uh, troubling personalities becoming peaceful. Difficult people becoming easy to get along with. He's also implying that if we cling to the status quo, that, well, this is the way I've always been, and refuse God's upsetting reconstruction project in our lives, we're not even a Christian at all. We have no part with Christ. And the third piece of content that we see in this passage is that the glory of the Lord will be revealed over the entire earth. We can be certain of it because God has decreed it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, he says. His glory will be delighted in and trembled at everywhere. The great sin of humanity is that they want God to be diminished. But he is resolved to overcome all God diminishing obstacles. In this passage. And magnify himself in our eyes through Jesus Christ our Lord. We talk a lot about the glory of God. And we should talk a lot about the glory of God. But what, do we understand what we're talking about? If I were to ask you to find for me the glory of God, what would you say? John Piper said of our current church culture, In the church, our view of God is so small instead of huge. So marginal instead of crucial, so vague instead of clear, so impotent instead of all-determining, so uninspiring instead of ravishing that the responsibility to live to the glory of God is a thought without content. The words can come out of our mouths, but ask the average Christian to tell what they know about the glory of this God that they're going to live for and the answer will not be long. So what is the glory of the Lord? Let's look at this. His glory is the fiery radiance of his very nature. It's a blazing beauty. We see it on Mount Sinai in Exodus. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, Exodus 24. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord in the first chapter in a vision, a supercharged war chariot coming down from heaven to establish the rule of God on the earth. When Jesus was born, we all know it. Linus spoke about it. The glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds, and they were sore afraid. Jesus says, John says, Jesus Himself is the ultimate display of the glory of God. John chapter one. His his transfiguration in Luke nine unveiled His glory. And here's the irony of the gospel. In John 13, we're told that as Jesus hung on the cross in shame, we would see the glory of God. See, our ideas of God's glory have to adjust to his beautiful willingness to humble himself. All the way to an agonizing death for us. Paul taught us that the arrogant world, only in in this arrogant world... A weak and foolish gospel can reveal the Lord of glory. The cross of glory shames all human pride. Paul writes, but when Christ returns, how different it will be. He will appear in overwhelming glory, Titus 2. That God has called us to share in that glory of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. And believers stand to inherit an eternal weight of glory, Second Corinthians chapter 4. And throughout eternity, the new Jerusalem will have no need for a sun or a moon because the glory of the Lord gives its light and its light lamp is the Lamb, meaning Jesus. Revelation 21. The glory of the Lord, therefore, is God becoming visible. God bringing his presence to us displaying his beauty before us the true answer to our deepest longings and he promises to do this for us it's the central promise of the gospel god kept his promise in the hidden glory of christ's first coming he continues to keep his promise as the holy spirit awakens us to the glory of the lord in christ and his gospel And he will consummate his promise ultimately at his second coming. Now all of this is contained in seed form, if you will, in verse 5 of Isaiah. And our part is to have the courage to welcome him with a bold restructuring of our lives. Let him renovate us, reconstruct us. Nothing could be greater for us than to be wonderfully disrupted by the power of that hope. May I suggest it's worth the upheaval? Third, you have the certainty of this promise. You got the content, you got the occasion, but there's a certainty that Isaiah brings out in verses 6 through 8. A voice says, Cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. See, Isaiah hears another voice giving him a message to declare. Isaiah is told to tell us that we... Are unreliable he is reliable God's promise is infallible we are not and that must be said just a chapter earlier King Hezekiah the King Hezekiah when told that his family is going to be taken away to Babylon he says my people even my own sons will someday be slaves in Babylon no problem As long as I die comfortably in my bed. How would you like that for your leader? No. And and he was considered a faithful king. (laughs) Even our good intentions are inconsistent. Like the flower of the field. We blossom really only under ideal circumstances. Not under the blasts of real life. And this pandemic has been a real blast, has it not? That's why Christianity is not about what we do. It's about what God has done. Christianity is not fundamentally pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just be a disciple of Jesus for crying out loud. No. It's about fundamentally about the assurance of your status as his beloved child. It must be. Only God qualifies for our final trust. And he does because no human power or condition can ever stop him. We are the merest of grass and flowers, but the word of our God will stand forever. Human failure is costly, but it's not the end of our happiness. God's promise of salvation is final. Right now, in the present, he is committed to his own glory and his joy in our glory or our joy in his glory rather and our hope rests in that certainty fourth we see in this passage there's a not only a, a hope for that glory but there's a spreading of that promise get you up to a high mountain o zion herald of the good news lift up your voice with strength o jerusalem Herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with the young. Isaiah calls all who cherish this hope to spread their enthusiasm for God's coming glory. He says in verse 9, y'all go up on a high hill, bring your amp and crank up the volume, all right? Don't let your fears keep you silent and draw attention to God and to say to everyone around you, look, look, Here's God. See, our God doesn't work in our lives at arm's length. Or only through church programs or by handing down decrees from on high. He comes and brings his presence. And his presence is our joy. That's a simple message. You don't need to know all that much. You just need to step over the line and encourage And trust him. What is your God worth to us all? Verse 10, he's our conquering king. He's our wealthy benefactor. Verse 11, he's your tender shepherd. This is Jesus. What in the world more could you ask for? (laughs) The Geneva Bible was the first Bible with uh, commentary notes. It says of verse 9, he shows in one word the perfection of all of man's happiness, which is to have God's presence. Spreading this glad expectation to others is the best way to amplify our joy in it. Paul organized his whole life this way. He said in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. C.S. Lewis said it this way. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps. Rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. My friends, God's purpose is not only that you and I enjoy the comfort of the gospel, but that we increase our enjoyment of it by spreading that joy to others who don't know of it. God had told Judah to trust him and no one else. And they refused to trust him. And they suffered for it. But God never forsakes his people who forsake him. His promise, his initiative, his imagination, his grace and glory are our comfort even in our failures. You can trust this God even more than you can trust yourself and you can trust this God absolutely. And that's an Advent worth celebrating. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for your word which continues to remind us that you don't forget your promises to your people. That there is an occasion for this promise because we're sinners to the core and we are in need of your rescue. There's a content of this promise, which you remind us to return to you. There's a means by which we got to prepare our lives. And it's such joy that we spread it to the world around us. Lord, fill us with this hope and this joy that you may be glorified in our midst. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And with your spirit. Mm -hmm. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to To be written for our learning. Grant Grant us us so so to hear hear them. them. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That we may...